Chapter Seven of Survivors' Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Samuel. Survivors' Tales of Famous Crimes, edited by Walter Wood. Chapter Seven: The Brighton Railway Murder. In 1881 a profound sensation was caused throughout the country by the murder of Mr. Frederick Isaac Gold in a first-class compartment of an express train from London Bridge Station to Brighton. The murderer, Percy Lefroy, alias Mapleton, escaped from custody in the most astonishing manner, and remained in hiding for more than a week. His arrest was a matter of such intense interest that it was made known at the Lord Mayor's banquet and in the House of Commons. An important witness in the case was Mr. Thomas Picknell, and this is his story of the crime. Just on this spot where we are standing, in the six-foot way, I picked up a collar on the afternoon of June 27, 1881. It was an ordinary turn-down collar of the type very common in those days, but there was an extraordinary thing about it, and it was this. The collar was covered in blood. I examined the collar, and so did my mate who was with me. Having done so, I let it drop back into the six-foot way. I was a ganger at that time, and it was my duty to examine a certain section of the line twice every weekday and once every Sunday. I was carrying out that task when I found the collar. In spite of the stains I did not think much of the discovery, for I supposed that a passenger had scratched his neck and had taken the collar off and thrown it out of the window of a passing train. All sorts of odd things are disposed of in this manner. After throwing the collar back into the six-foot way, we walked on to Balcombe Station, about three-quarters of a mile away, and there I was startled to hear that another mate of mine, named Thomas Jennings, had found the dead body of a man in Balcombe Tunnel. Balcombe, as you see, is a quiet little country place, with not much going on, but it suddenly became very busy and famous, for a crime had been committed which filled the country with horror, and was the thing that was mostly talked about for many a long day. I soon learned what had happened. Jennings had walked through the tunnel to do some haymaking, and, having finished, he was walking back towards the station, carrying a naphtha lamp with him. He had got almost exactly in the middle of the tunnel when he found the body lying in the six-foot way—that is, of course, the space between the two sets of metals. At that time the cause of death was not known, and I don't suppose that any time was lost in trying to find out. The main thing was to report the affair at the station, and get the body out of the tunnel. There was great excitement all at once. An engine and a brake were got, a brake such as a guard uses on a goods train, and the engine took a number of us into the tunnel to get the body up and bring it on to Balcombe. It was a gloomy business, and a strange scene it was as we gathered round the body in the six-foot way, working by the lights of our naphtha lamps just the sort of lamps you see at fairs and lighting costers' carts at night. The task was very difficult, too, because of the constant traffic through the tunnel, which caused us time after time to get into the manholes for shelter. We were in the tunnel about an hour, because we had to wait for a policeman. At the end of that time we had got the body into the brake, and it was drawn by the engine to the station and carried to the railway inn, where it was put in the coach-house. When we first saw the body, it was lying on its back, with the head towards Brighton. Even in the gloomy light of the tunnel, 
it was evident that terrible injuries had been caused, for the face was covered with blood, and on this the black dust from passing engines and the ballast had settled thickly, making the features look as dark as a negro's. It was clear enough that murder had been done, and that there had been a long and fierce struggle before Mr. Gold was lying in the middle of Balcombe Tunnel. I first picked the collar up, it was soon secured, of course, in view of the discovery of the body, at about a quarter to five. By that time an extraordinary thing had happened at Preston Park Station, just outside Brighton. A ticket collector, on opening the door of a first-class compartment, found a young man in it who had neither hat nor collar, who was covered with blood, and who was looking as if he had been badly knocked about. Blood was spattered all over the compartment, and the young man, Percy Lefroy, asked for a policeman to be sent for. When one came, he declared that when he left London Bridge, two men were in the compartment with him, one of them an elderly person, and the other looking like a countryman. Lefroy said that, on entering a tunnel, he was murderously assaulted by one of the men, and became insensible, and that he knew nothing more until he reached Preston Park. While he was telling his tale, it was noticed that a watch-chain was hanging from his shoe, and, on his attention being called to this circumstance, he explained that he had put his watch there for safety. Lefroy was allowed to keep the watch and chain, and to go on to Brighton, the policeman being with him. He was taken to the town hall where he made a statement, and he was then removed to the hospital, where his injuries were attended to. He showed a keen wish to get away, saying he wished to return to his home at Wallington, near Croydon, where he lived with a second cousin. He was given permission to go back, but the case looked very suspicious, and two railway policemen accompanied him. On the journey, at one of the stopping-places, the party learned that Mr. Gold's body had been found. This was stated by an official of the company, and Lefroy heard it, but it does not seem that he was greatly upset by the tidings. He reached Wallington and the cousin's house, then he told the police that he was going out to see a doctor. Amazing as it seems, he was allowed to go, and from that moment, for more than a week, all trace of him was lost. An inquest was held, a tremendous affair it was for a little place like Balcombe, special wires being fitted so that long telegrams could be sent off to the newspapers, and a verdict of willful murder was returned against Lefroy. A reward, too, was offered for his arrest, and the whole country was thrown into a state of the most intense excitement, and a lot of people were quite unnerved when it came to a question of travelling by train. I spent many weary days at the inquest, at the police court proceedings, and at the trial at the assizes, so that every detail of the case became familiar to me, and I remember them pretty well even now. So I will just outline the actual story of what happened on that famous summer day in 1881. Mr. Gold was a retired London businessman, about sixty-four years old, and lived at Brighton. He was still interested in a business in London, and every Monday morning he went to town to get his share of the profits. This money he sometimes took home with him, and at other times he paid it into the bank. On this particular Monday morning he received thirty-eight pounds odd, and with the exception of the shillings and pence he put the money into the bank, and then went to London Bridge Station, which he reached just before two o'clock. The train, an express, left London Bridge at two o'clock, the only stopping-places being Croydon and Preston Park. Mr. Gold, who
who was a season ticket-holder, was well known on the line. He occupied a seat in a first-class smoking compartment, and just before the train started, Lefroy, who had been walking up and down the platform looking into the carriages, jumped in and seated himself in the compartment. At Croydon, the guard noticed that Mr. Gold was apparently taking a nap, for he had a handkerchief over his head. When the express reached Merstham Tunnel, a passenger heard four reports, which he thought were fog signals, but which proved to be revolver shots. Lefroy had begun with his murderous work by firing with a revolver which he had got out of pawn. Then began a long and terrible struggle, for Mr. Gold, though elderly, was a big, powerful man, and he defended himself in the most resolute manner. Mile after mile the fight went on. It was calculated afterwards that the struggle was continued over a distance of fourteen miles. It began when the train was about seventeen miles from London, and ended only in the middle of Balcombe Tunnel, about thirty-one miles from London Bridge, with the flinging out of the compartment of a man who, by that time, had one bullet in the head, and about fourteen knife-wounds on various parts of the body. The medical evidence showed that the actual cause of death was a fracture at the base of the skull, which was, no doubt, the result of the fall from the train into the six-foot way. That there was a fierce struggle was shown by the statements of a woman who lived in a cottage at Hawley, about eight miles from Merstham Tunnel. She was outside the cottage, and as the train dashed by, she saw two men struggling in a compartment. They were standing up, and at first she did not know whether or not they might be engaged in the sort of horse-play which so often takes place in trains. The train roared through Balcombe Tunnel, and out into the open air, and passed me on the line, but I took no more notice of it than I took of any of the scores of trains that went up and down in the course of a day. By that time Lefroy had shut the door of the compartment, and was speeding on to Preston Park, no doubt concocting the wonderful tale which he told when the train stopped for the collection of tickets. He had thrown his collar away, and his silk hat as well. Doubtless also the revolver and the knife, for we found a knife in the tunnel near the body. At Brighton he went to a shop to buy a collar, which proved to be the same size as the one I found, and he got a hat, also the same size as the one which was found on the line, and an uncommon size, because Lefroy was an uncommon-looking person. He had a receding forehead, and a very receding chin, and his teeth and gums showed prominently when he smiled. I had many opportunities of studying him, and he seemed to be the last person in the world to commit a murder, least of all the murder of a man like Mr. Gold. I should think that Mr. Gold was almost twice the size, taking all round, of Lefroy, but I dare say that the awful peril of his position, and his determination to see his business through, gave Lefroy the strength of a madman while he was doing his work. He was only about twenty-two years old, and was about five feet eight inches in height, but weedy-looking and not very fit. The murder had been done, and the whole country was more or less panic-stricken, because Lefroy had escaped. There was a tremendous outcry, and all sorts of theories were set afoot to account for his disappearance. He had committed suicide, gone abroad, been seen in many towns in England, and so forth. But, as a matter of fact, he had made his way to London, and taken lodgings in a small house in a little mean street in Stepney, giving out that he was an engineer from Liverpool. It was afterwards known that Lefroy hid in the house for nearly eight days, never leaving it, and almost starving, certainly looking so miserable and wretched that he was enough to arouse pity in the heart of any one who saw him. 
there was never a suspicion that he was a murderer. In those days there were not the wonderful means that exist now of publishing photographs and particulars of people who were wanted by the police. It was a rare thing for a newspaper to give a portrait, but the Daily Telegraph had a picture of Lefroy, which aroused enormous interest and was remarkably like him. He was so uncommon-looking that if he had been at large I think it is pretty certain he would have been taken much sooner than was actually the case. Lefroy had neither money nor luggage, and it became urgently necessary to secure the means to pay his bill. He managed to send a telegram off, in the name of Clark, to an office in Gresham Street, asking for money to be sent to him that night without fail. That was on Friday, July the 8th, eleven days after the murder. By that time the published portrait had been seen and studied by great numbers of persons, and when the telegram was handed in at the post-office, information was given that a man strongly resembling the picture was lodging at the house in Stepney. The police were communicated with, and, instead of the money reaching Lefroy, when the door opened he saw two police officers. He knew why they wanted him, and made no resistance, nor did he say much, except that he was not guilty of the crime. Lefroy was taken to Stepney Police Station, then to Scotland Yard, and having spent the night at King Street Police Station, Westminster, he was hurried off to Victoria Station early next morning, and taken to East Grinstead. The blood-stained clothes which he was wearing when he reached Brighton, and which he had exchanged for another suit while in charge of the police, were carried down at the same time. At that preliminary hearing the magistrates at Cookfield, in which district the body had been found, sat in a Talbot Hotel, Lefroy being kept in Lewis Chale, sixteen miles away. The magistrate's inquiry lasted four days, and each morning Lefroy was driven in a two-horse fly from the prison to the court, and each afternoon he was driven back. I do not think he was ever seen in public without being hooted. Lefroy was committed for trial at the Maidstone Assizes, and had to wait four months in prison before he appeared in the dock, before the Lord Chief Justice. The hearing occupied four days. Enormous interest was taken in one of the most striking things in connection with the crime, and that was the railway carriage in which the terrible struggle took place. This carriage was seen time after time by jurymen and others concerned in the case, and I became very familiar with it. In the actual compartment there were abundant signs of the fight, and even on the footboard were marks of blood, which showed that, to the very end, Mr. Gold had fought for his life. He had apparently made a last frantic clutch as he was hurled out of the train. The state of the carriage, and the condition of the body, showed at a glance how long and fierce the fight had been. As for the appearance of Lefroy at Preston Park and Brighton, I cannot say anything, as I did not see him then. But when I did see him, soon after his arrest, there were not many signs that he had gone through such a desperate struggle. He seemed to have had matters pretty much his own way, but having a loaded revolver and a knife against an unarmed man gave him tremendous odds. It was on Gunpowder Plot Day that the trial before the Lord Chief Justice began. By that time Lefroy had improved very much in looks, and had had time to pull himself together. Considering the nature of the evidence against him, and the almost utter hopelessness of an acquittal, he was amazingly cool. In fact, he seemed to be about the most unaffected person in court. There was no doubt that he had a mania for attracting public attention, and he made the extraordinary request 
that he should be allowed to get a dress-suit out of pawn, and wear it in the dock. This fancy was not gratified, but the young man made the best of his chances, and was particularly attentive to a silk hat which he wore. Each morning when he was brought up into the dock from the cells below, he bowed ceremoniously to the judge and the court generally. It seemed as if the prisoner's great object was to attract attention, and I was astonished that a man who stood in such peril of his life could find time or inclination for such trifles. But the fact was that to the very last moment Lefroy believed that he would be acquitted, and there were other people who actually persuaded themselves that he would be found not guilty. It may have been that they credited the story of the third man in a compartment, the person who looked like a countryman. All I can say on that point is that if there really was a third party in the compartment, it was the devil himself. I got weary of the whole business long before it was finished, though we had a day off in the course of the trial. That was on Lord Mayor's Day, when the judge had to go to London to take part in the ceremonies. On the afternoon of the fourth day of the trial, the judge had finished his long summing up, and the jury retired to consider their verdict. That took them only a few minutes. They found Lefroy guilty, and he was sentenced to death. When he had been condemned, he told the jury that some day they would learn that they had murdered an innocent man. It was an odd circumstance that, after being so closely connected with the case for so long, I was not present in court when Lefroy was found guilty and sentenced. I had got tired of the oft-told story and the stuffy atmosphere, and when the summing up was going on I was wandering round the prison walls examining them. When I got back to the court all was over. Lefroy had been removed, and soon afterwards he was taken, handcuffed and under a strong police escort, to Lewis Jail. Even in the condemned cell Lefroy did not abandon hope, and he wrote a letter in which he asked for a file and a small saw to be sent to him, concealed in the crust of a meat pie, his object evidently being to try and break out of prison, though how he expected to do that, when he was constantly guarded, is a mystery. He also tried to get poison sent in to him, but these attempts were fruitless. A petition for a reprieve was signed, but no notice was taken of it. When, at the very last, Lefroy knew that his doom was certain, he confessed to the murder. He said that he was so desperately in need of money that he was determined to go to any length to get it, even to the extent of murder. He walked up and down on the platform at London Bridge, in the hope of finding a woman alone in a compartment. In that case he would have got in and demanded money from her, hoping that he would be able to escape, and that it would not be necessary to do more than stun her. There was not, mercifully, any such solitary woman, and seeing Mr. Gold alone, and noticing that he looked prosperous, Lefroy jumped into the compartment just before the train started. The watch which he had in his shoe at Preston Park was Mr. Gold's. Before being arrested, Lefroy threw the watch over Blackfriars Bridge. Lefroy was hanged at Lewis by Marwood on November 29th, almost exactly five months after he murdered Mr. Gold. I don't know what became of the collar. I saw it at the inquest and at the trial, but not afterwards, and I didn't wish to see it, for I had had enough of it. As to the revolver, the police made a long and tiring search on the line and elsewhere, but they were not successful. After Lefroy was hanged, a ganger found a revolver in a little hole at Earlswood, and that was supposed to be the weapon which was used. I dare say there are many relics of the terrible affair, 
but most of the people who were connected with the trial have died. Of all the local people, I think I am the only one left, though Jennings is, I believe, still alive somewhere in America. Well, that's the story of the famous Brighton train murder. Here we are, on the very spot where I found the collar. Now we can go on picking primroses on the embankment. They're beautiful, aren't they? Balkan primroses are said to be the finest in England, and, being a Balkan man for fifty years, I honestly believe it. End of chapter 7 The Brighton Railway Murder